Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here once again with my co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. Um, we have a very special guest this week. She's appeared on this podcast before but we thought we'd, we'd talk about her own work this week and we have Associate Professor Marcel Freeman. Hi Marcel. Hi Steph. Hi Michelle. Um, yeah. So I thought I'd, I'd read a little bio of Marcel because we are um, focusing on her own creative work today. Um, so Marcel Freeman has published two books of poetry, White Lines, which came out in 2010, and Monkey's Wedding, which came out in 1995. Um, Monkey's Wedding was highly commended for the ASAL Mary Gilmore Award in 1996. Um, Marcel's work has also appeared in literary journals in Australia and overseas, including in Antipodes, Blue Dog, The Bulletin, Cordite Poetry Review, Kunapipi, Mascara Literary Review, Meniscus, Southerly, Stand Magazine, and has been read on radio and in performance. Um, so Marcel's creative work includes poetry, the rise of visual arts in poetry, roles of memory and cognitive experience in writing. Um, she's a member of the Sydney-based poetry group Diverse, um, which uh, is about writing and performing poetry based on visual arts and objects in museums and galleries. So, Marcel, that's a very <laughs> impressive bio there. It was actually a bit of a mouthful to, to read out. Um, can you talk about how you started writing poetry? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a really good question, Steph. Um, I actually started writing poetry when I was at school, mm. and I had a poem published in the school magazine, Ooh. which I no longer have. Oh, that's a shame. But it was kind of encouraging. <laughs> Nevertheless, I didn't write any poetry while I was an undergraduate hmm. studying English, and I actually started writing poetry again as, an, as a young adult, um, when I um, when I left South Africa in 1977 and went to live in London, right, and I think that was really where the real creative spark of my poetry started, where I had things I needed to say, and the only way I could do them, <laughs> do that, say them, was in in poetry. And I I started then really um, with a lot more seriousness. Yeah. Um, so what was it about ever. that move from, from South Africa? Well, it was an immigration. It was a real cut from where I had grown up. Mm. It was a cut of place. It w so, you know, it was an exciting thing to do. It was a politically, it was a very valuable thing and an important thing. Mm. But it was also very confronting, leaving one's life, one's family, one's homeland. Mm. <clears throat> and um, I left um, gladly. Yeah. I wanted to go, and it was only afterwards that I realised that there, that it wasn't so simple because <laughs> I was young and, you know, yeah. you do things like that when you're young. So um, I think it was that sense of also being away from from, from my extended family mm. and I think it was the need to try and um, connect with who I was in relation to that family that were absent and that place. So was your early work then in this period quite political in nature or was it more personal? No, it wasn't political at the beginning. It was more personal. Mm. But the political um, stuff and, the, and, the, and the, the stuff about the country, which was going through such incredible turmoil right through the 80s, 90s, um, that started to be part of my story. Yeah. So it was impossible to, to tell. Yeah. But, you know, there was a time for a long time from the 1970s all the way through to about after after 1996 when they had the new South Africa was kind of on the road, um, where it was not okay to tell your white South African story. Mm. 
Yeah. I remember going to workshops and people would say, why are you telling this? We're not interested. You're white. Yeah, that's interesting, and isn't so it? And so the whole racial thing kind of got transported along with me. I was a, sim- a symptom of apartheid without actually even having chosen it. Even though you were fleeing apartheid, really. I was really. absolutely yeah. and had resisted it, and that's why mm-hmm. I left. Um, yeah. It wasn't read that way. Oh, that's interesting. And so uh, it was. I had to really overcome quite a lot of... Um, and then, of course, you self-censor, you know. So I had to overcome that. It was when... When my work became better received, when the world around was more receptive, the workshops that I went to mm. were more receptive, that it started to be that big part of my life could start becoming part of my poetry. But at the beginning, it was more about place. It was about coming to Australia. It was about um, England, yeah. um, you know, and also about um, family. But it wasn't really looking at what happened in the place I lived in, which was a very big story. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and that's <laughs> such a kind of vexed question at the moment, isn't it? Like who can write whose experiences yeah, and absolutely. what voices are speaking. And, yeah. and to, sort of re- rec- to sort of say, well, you know, for good or bad, this is my story. Mm. And then start to put it in, you know, to start to develop the confidence to do that. Mm. And that only comes with getting some poetry acceptances and, and recognising that, yes, you know, um, I can, I can say something. People think it's good enough to publish. <laughs> people want to listen. Well, people were listening in your school days, so <laughs> yes, they were. But yeah, I forgot, and I had mm. a lot of encouragement from my grandmother, who who knew I liked to write as a child, and yeah. said to me, "Don't neglect your talent." <laughs> <laughs> With her finger wag. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think even in your sort of early poetry, there's there's a sort of a, a potency in the way that you deploy place. You know that mm. that, I, that I think that even when it's not sort of, um, and and that's not to sort of reduce that potency to you know sort of the political, but but just perhaps that more complex position um, that 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 uh, mm. that uh, that, uh, that you 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 felt in 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 sort of being effectively exiled, I guess in a sense mm. from from a country that uh, you know I, I can't imagine a more stark um, contrast. Between you know sort of the 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 incredible um, you know sort of uh, landscape of, of South Africa to, mm. to, to to London. I mean, I, I just you know the shock <laughs> of that in terms of you know climate in in terms of um, you, you know sort of the form in, in every way. You know, it was such an interesting time in my life because it was like going into the storybooks. It was the seasons were, oh, this is what they meant. Oh, this is what blackberries look like. This is what daffodils <laughs> are. This is what Ian Blyton was about. This is a, a, a white Christmas. <laughs> I'm in it. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was the, the true kind of post-colonial back to the centre. Mm. <laughs> I actually think you feel that in Oak. Yes, you know, that sense. actually is what Oak is about in, in White Lines. Um, do you want me to read yeah, it? That, that'd be lovely yeah. because I think you capture that. Okay, um, well, it's really interesting because this poem, this was one of the poems that took a very long time to arrive. Um, it started off as one thing and then I developed it further uh, many years later. Um, but I I think that the, the key here was that I was, it was about what was my relationship as, as a person who'd grown up in a kind of um, colonial country like South Africa, very much like Australia was colonial, except mm. we had all the other um, apartheid stuff to deal with, mm. um, which I always think of as colonialism 
ramped up about a million. Mm. Oh, <laughs> but if we're going to be really frank, Australia's history is, is not necessarily it's, it's not, it's, that it's, different. It's, it's very much South similar, Africans. and there was a lot more owning of what happened in South Africa yeah. than there yeah. has yeah. been here. Um, but it was about what did that mean to go to England as someone who had grown up in South Africa, and I think that's, that's what this poem's about. I'll read it, and you'll see what I mean. So this is actually based on a, just before I go on, it's based on an exhibition in the Powerhouse Museum where they, they exhibited like lesson cards, like for very early TAFE colleges <laughs> in Sydney, where they had different trees and, and you know, woodworking like, mm. so, so the one for the wood from oak, now oak is a very English yeah. tree, but that was included in the what you learnt about wood You've got to learn about your old England, yeah. In, in Australia, <laughs> yeah. So you're you're starting to be a, a carpenter, and you have to learn about oak wood, um, which you know it's one yeah, of those. It's like exactly. it's like people in Africa learning about Jane Austen and Shakespeare. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. that was kind of informing what I did, I did here. Oak. The lesson card from England pointed to the oak as native tree. And singing, Oh Danny Boy and My Bonnie, our childish voices lifting to green hills and valleys. We learned how we'd never be at home in the felt and dusty kikuyu grass outside the classroom windows, birth written by our whiteness, either to rule or leave. England called us, better there, the ordered world, safe. But we'd pine like animals for the smell of African sand, strong as flint, strong in our veins. The summer we travelled to Stonehenge, my hands turned to artefacts. I was seeking my history in the broken circle of stones, as if my language would assure, and the moon of Delamere would shed its silver, cool as mercury. But the immigrant had lost her words, white puppet on a stalk, turned her face to f again to find the sun, with the earth as red stubble on a blue Pacific coast with pink hibiscus. I count the years since leaving the yellow felt. In the fifth, the puppet petals dropped. The eighth, I sent a tapestry, patterns of words on canvas, threaded with the brown and gold of sand and memories. The year our Sydney garden was shaded by an old oak tree, I rubbed my back against her crusty bark, like an antelope itching with dust. That's lovely. That? <laughs> so so that's about my, my double immigration from South Africa to England and from England here to Australia. And that is such a, a, a technically difficult thing to achieve because... Three settings, yeah. The settings, the, 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 the movement in time and, and to sort of retain a reader from beginning to end um, through some really vivid potent images I mean that was that was one of the the moments um and I, I think uh that image of the puppet is is such a a powerful way of thinking through the way that uh, it, it, it feels to be confronted with histories and and stories and um that that, that are supposed to be your own but just, yeah, like mm. something else is pulling the strings, I suppose, yeah. that sense of being a string puppet, you know. Um, thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate what you say. And, um, you know, when I write a poem like this, I'm not quite sure where it's going to go and I'm not quite mm. sure how it's going to end up. And 
I guess when I wrote, when I finished this one, I was a little bit concerned that all the moves through space through different places would come through. One would have to be able to pick, you know, the references to Stonehenge, for example, and and you know to Danny Boy and to Walter de la Mer, mm. and to the education that I had that was so English based, mm. just like here in Australia was in the nineteen fifties. Um, and yeah, and then um, finishing it off, it really all came together when I remember that of course we had an oak tree in Sydney mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and and yeah it was that sort of um the transported species you, you know, know I was recently <laughs> I was recently in Port Arthur in Tasmania and they've got um one section of the old kind of um col- well the old prison yeah. village is is completely planted out with English plants because they wanted to the the wealthy people wanted to look out and see England because it's cold in Tasmania. Yes. Um and they thought if we just plant all of these, you know, dig up all the native and indigenous plants and and just plant oak trees and, you know, English roses and all of this, then we can look out and because it might be raining, we'll pretend we're in England and I thought that was such a kind of um interesting way of transforming a little pocket of of Australia into into England in this kind of really forced and um, interesting way. It is, but it's actually even more endemic because Mm. when you think of the early artists who came out here, like John Glover, for example, Mm. who came from Scotland, and when they were confronted with the Australian landscape, the the way they started painting it was like using a kind of John Constable type of Mm. arrangement, but trying to get those gum trees in the light... Um, it took a, about a generation of artists before they could actually inhabit the mm. light and the place of Australia. So that being in two places at once thing is very, very mm. for me, being, the sense of being in more than one place at a time is something I just live with. Yeah. You know, um, so... And that comes through in that poem. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> How long does it take you to write a poem like that? Because you said it took a while to, for it to come, and I don't write anything creative, so I'm very fascinated it's, by all this. You know, it's such a funny thing because some of these poems come quite quickly all at once, yeah. and then they get, they get reworked. Yeah. But others kind of take a long time, especially with, often when they are quite deep, in a sense, <laughs> yeah. you know, without being sort of coy about it. But there, with a, there's, a, there's an exploration to be made through the poem. Mm. In other words, that I... I'm not quite sure what that exploration will be or what it's about. Like, uh, we've been doing some work in, in, in creative writing classes about this, about how sometimes you have to write something to find out what you really want to write about, which may not be quite that thing, mm. particularly when you're dealing with things that are very close to you or memories and things like that. Um, and so sometimes a poem can take a long genesis because it hasn't quite arrived and I wasn't happy with this poem for a very long time. That's why I say it took a long time to write. And mm. it had started off being about Stonehenge and living in England. Mm. But then I, I was working with it with on this project at the uh, Powerhouse Museum, and one of the exhibits there were these lesson cards. And so looking, I, I looked at that and I thought, oh, I need to finish this poem. <laughs> and so I went and hauled this out and I re- rewrote it. And only the the bits that the only the few bits that stayed were like the Stonehenge bit and the puppet bit that was there from the beginning, but um, a lot of the other stuff really only came. I would this was an unfinished poem in my notebooks. Mm. You know, I had typed it out, but I I knew that it hadn't come together, so it was just sitting there. And I went and and got it. This doesn't often happen, 
and I reworked it until because I was writing for this particular event with Diverse but also because actually revisiting that poem was really important for me at the time. Mm. And so when I say it took a long time, I did work on it all the time. There were long yeah. gaps. Um, but a poem can take, even if I am working a, a, on it quite consistently, it could still go through so many draftings. Mm. Um, usually got about 20 poems on the go at the same time. Wow. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's not like I write one and then I finish it and I write another one. Yeah, it's yeah. never like that. Mm. I've got this kind of mash <laughs> of poems and then I'll decide, oh, it's time to start sending some stuff out to journals. Let me see what's finished. Mm. And I'll go through what's finished and it's not quite finished, so I'll work some more on it and eventually, okay, I can send this out now. So I'll collect like a group of poems that I can then send into the world. Because you do a lot of work. Uh, working with pen and paper, don't you? Yes, yes. Which, um, you know, sort of creates a, a sort of a, 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 a sort of a stepped, um, you know, a stepped path towards yes. finishing, doesn't it? Because there's that movement from, you know, sort of the handwritten yeah. to the to the typing it up, which does so much to change um, a poem. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost sort of denuding it or something, isn't it? Um, well, it looks so fresh when it hits the screen. I mean, <laughs> what happens is that um, I always draft a poem by hand. I've I've have never started a poem on screen, um, so it'll always be by hand, and it gets kind of mishmashed about and added to and crossed out and balloons and you know go to page X and. Um, you know, I, until literally, I think God, I've, I've really got to get this <laughs> onto you know into another, another shape because I can't see it anymore. And then I'll write it up. Um, I used to actually write it up by hand again, but now I go and it'll, I'll put it straight onto the computer. Um, even in that process, though, I'll be reshaping, changing line lengths, and working a lot more with lines because I'm now working on something that looks more like a printed page. Because it's actually very difficult to um, sort of work in in word with you know sort of in in inserting um, you know sort of right aligned and left aligned and 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 then because in some of your poems we have that um, sort of beautiful visual layout on mm. the page and I mean that that's quite painstaking to do is is it not? Well, there's a reason for every mm. every positioning of a line on, within a poem. I mean that uh, that, that other one that's. We were looking. Uh, I thought I might talk about um, okay. is like that one. Yeah, that's the one. Country of birth. Um, that's my the birth. one that was recently published. And so this is country of birth. Can, yeah. This poem is country of my birth, which mm. I don't like the title anymore. However, <laughs> that's what it was published. So when it goes in the book, it's getting a new title. <laughs> but it's actually um, it started off like one of you know those kind of words worthy and titles because I didn't. It was very much a situated poem. I wrote it on a day. Right. Okay. And it yeah. felt appropriate that 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 day should be in the title. So, it's country of my birth. Lines written twenty seventh of June two thousand and thirteen. Well, at least you'll never forget what day it was. I will never forget <laughs> what day it was. And I was actually on a plane. I was I was about to get on a plane to London, right, to see my family there, and um, I had read a newspaper in the airport and it, there was a thing there that said that Nelson Mandela was very ill and was in hospital. And it just, that kind of brought a whole rush of feeling into me because I, of my regard for Nelson Mandela, but also for my fears of what would happen when Nelson Mandela was not there to keep 
people um, to keep the country in a way more or less, even though he wasn't, the, you know, he wasn't the president anymore. Um, but he was, he, to me, he was an absolute spark of hope mm. that came out of apartheid and made apartheid end without everybody getting killed. Mm. <laughs> it was an incredible It was incredible. Thing, it, was it? incredible. I mean, it was it was it was extraordinary. He's just one of those extraordinary figures. And I you know, um needless to say I've read his his biographies and all the mm. stories about his life and in reading prison in Robin Island and all the hardships because I, they actually ended up in quite close to my own history mm. in terms of various things that I've alluded to in this poem which I'm not gonna go into. There's a lot of my own biography in here. But what happened is I got on that plane and I still had this feeling of emotion and I thought, I need to write something. So I took out my notebook and I started to write this poem and I started to write it with a sense that Nelson Mandela lived his life in South Africa the same time that I was growing up in South Africa. There was this kind of column of fact. Mm. And then alongside it was my life in South Africa as a separate thing. Now, this was like the separation of apartheid, but also separation of generations. I was younger. Um, and it was also the separation of... Behind this was the fact that when I was growing up, I didn't know anything about Nelson Mandela at all. And it was only later that I found out that he was this amazing person who'd been imprisoned because he believed that apartheid should come to an end... Um, that he fought for um, a new South Africa. That he, you know, he that he was part of the development of the African National Congress, which was banned. All these these movements, these resistance movements, the way the South African government would handle anything like this, it was draconian. They were just banned, mm. and everybody in it yeah. was banned, and maybe under house arrest, or maybe thrown in prison, or worse. Yeah. And so there you had um, the silence. Okay, so I, look, I grew up in a, in a world, and as a child, because children don't know these things anyway, mm. but even as I was growing up, um, there was so much going on that I never knew about. We, uh, censorship was rife. I mean, you just... the pe White people did not know what was going on in the, in the black world. Mm. That was the fact of apartheid. The, the papers didn't tell the right stories. Yeah. They didn't tell the, the real stories. It's really indicative of the, of, of the potency and the power of, of that sort of censoring, isn't it? Absolutely. It was a totalitarian mm. regime where everything we thought that we, we thought or we were given um, was decided by someone else. The censorship was extraordinary. And isn't that an odd thing to find out more about what's actually happening in your country when you're not in it? Absolutely. Then when you are. <laughs> when I started to get, I started to get inklings of this as I was growing up, and I, we had some amazing teachers at my school, and that who sort of indicated to us that there was more to this than we were actually being had in our history syllabus. Mm. <laughs> you Which know, is a brave, the thing very brave thing. I, it was in a state school as well, um, mm. and so and you knew, you knew because there were people in 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 my community who were working for anti-apartheid movements and who were. Um, you know, who is particularly amongst, you know, Jewish South Africans. It was definitely a resistance, but you people didn't want to talk about it because it was actually dangerous. Mm. The p police had complete powers, the security police. So it was that sort of a place. And so there was this this world where if, even if you, there were stories, they were whispered. They were, they were just inklings 
of them. And then there was when, after what I then found out after I went to London and I started reading, was about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. The strikes, the protests, the imprisonments, the trials, the... You know, by the time I got to university, I had learned quite a lot. I was much more keyed in. But even then, there was so much I didn't know. And so all that kind of came on me in the, on that mm-hmm. plane where, let's face it, you're neither here nor there. Yeah. You know. Um, and so I started writing um, the poem, and it was coming out almost like it was on a left-hand column of what I then learned and on the right-hand column about what I didn't really know and how I lived. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing the way the page can set up that sort yeah, of Yeah, the page actually it? set it up. And when I typed it out from my notebook, and you, my notebook actually shows this, is there was this patterning. Mm. And I wanted to keep that. To me, that was a, a key part of the conceptualization of what I was trying to do. So the whole part, the whole poem has got lots of spacing. And I actually love working with spacing like that. Mm. It's fantastic because you can get rid of punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time in your life when you can go now. Absolutely. Throwing, um, throwing all punctuation. And some subjects that, you know, sort of punctuation seems to belittle or, or, or mm. hold just, up. Or, yeah. So, um, um, you know, just because we're doing a podcast, I mean, I, I can read a little bit yeah, of it. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Um, but it, it will be hard for me to say when I'm on the right or the left. <laughs> so it might be that, it, the, that the listener has to know. Yeah, yeah this one's available. It, it's in It is, yes, it is available. Is, you is, can is get it, it, it online. It's online, Transnational is, yeah, Literature. It's open source. It's an open so, source. Yeah, yeah, it's an open source journal. It uh, was published earlier this year. Okay, so you'll see from where I start off where the poem started. Today Nelson Mandela is ailing in a Pretoria hospital in the land I fled in 1977, anxious as a daker. How did I love, hate a country where I knew so much silence? In blank surfaces of days, did not hear his voice, his fugitive life, the Boxburg strikes when our grandparents lived of May 1961, his words that rang across the courtroom of his truth in 1962 were treason in the Sunday Times, whispers overheard at home of Ravonia. That was where the trials, they were called the Ravonia trials. Mm. Names splintered the night. My father at the table with a whiskey, something about Bram Fisher. Dad knew of his arrest. I was 13 in 1964, skinny growing, knew nothing of the people's words from rooftops, stations, sidings, factories. My ears were stoppered. Then whispers would turn to more. Bold teacher taught high school girls our history while censors rained fear on us. Seven years later in 1971 at 19, truth would out. White protests, students, The blue uniform policeman, brown leather holster, revolvered me in revolving door between action and fear, snatched from my hands the Ronio leaflets, black ink still damp, stains on my fingers. But we marched our placards down Commissioner Street, law student boyfriend protective. If the cops come, run, and we ran, and then heard of leaders, writers, slipped in showers, they said, in John Forster Square, or fell from windows. Brothers, students, arrested at university gates, were released on the Vice-Chancellor's plea, 
Police promises not to record crimes of protest were betrayed, we later discovered, and all white boys had to do their time, army conscripts at 18, to fight for, on behalf of, apartheid. So that's part one of that part. You know, as you were reading... I mean, I could see what you were reading, so maybe I'm biased by mm. that, but I could also hear the different lines. Could I think you, hear... you could hear where, where you had indented and then come back. Yeah, I, it, it kind of... Um, it was what I couldn't see and what I learnt, mm. but it, it kind of came together in those university days, but mm. there was that sense still always of that uh, that, that divided world. I, I, think that, I think that, you know, with... Even with the sort of the reading of the poem where we can't see it, I think mm. what you can feel is the sort of the pendulum movement, mm-hmm. you know, sort of that yeah. backwards and forwards, mm. which, you know, sort of I think happens when we, we see things on, on the page and it changes the way that we read and it changes the way we process information as well, doesn't it? Because, you know, that, that, was, that, was, the, mm-hmm. that was the sort of the auditory cue, I think, that, that just sort of swung um, back and forth and then, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 as, as the sort of the poem gathered um, force. Mm. There was a real sense of centering, I think. I think, look, I've re- obviously I've redrafted it quite a lot, but the basic inherent structure of the mm. line placing on the page stayed. Mm. Um, I've c- I cut quite a bit. There, there's a lot more. <laughs> it was a lot more histrionic. Mm. <laughs> the first draft was a lot more emotional. I, I pulled that back a lot. It's still there. Mm. It's still there, but I've, ha- I've pulled that back, and that often happens. Oh, Marcel, on a plane, I can barely function. So if you're writing poetry on a plane, you're beating well, me. <laughs> it, was, it was a good outcome. Was yeah. Good. <laughs> I've never had such a productive plane. Uh, no, normally I sit like a blob and that's all I want to do. But in this case, I was terribly upset by the yeah. fact that Nelson Mandela, you know, was ill and ailing. And mm. I was just incredibly upset mm. by that news. It's often the measure of somebody great, isn't it? The, 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 that ability to uh, sort of to touch on, on, a, on a sort of a, a really quite... Uh, personal level on a, on a on a deep level um, yeah and and also just knowing like because when I'd written read his biography and I recognized oh my god there were strikes in Boxburg my grandparents lived in Boxburg we went there every Sunday for lunch I never knew there were strikes there big yeah. strikes that's you know protests at the station police that's hard to process isn't it you know like what you know um because he documents all of it of course you know, I, look, I was young, admittedly, so maybe it's easy to be shielded. But it wasn't something was talked about. Mm. Even I was a re- newspaper reader. I listened to the radio. There was nothing. Mm. Yeah, that's and, a beautiful way of kind of looking at the politics of, of a, like a totalitarian uh, state through that that lens of of knowing versus not knowing, and you being in this place and thinking you understand this place because you think you understand your home, right? And then you don't. And then you don't, or you, you see you, a completely different perspective. You find on you it. don't. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I talk about this a lot with my older brother, who's only 18 months older than I am, and he was one of those boys who was arrested, mm-hmm. a, a student, because that actually happened. Um, this was a student protest we were involved in. That thing about the policeman and the revolting, that happened. It scared me so much. It was horrible. Um, you know, to be sort of muscled and jostled and mm-hmm. kind of pushed. It's shocking, isn't it? By a policeman with a gun. You know, mm. um, <laughs> if you can't, yeah, like the police. No, I, you, you know, know you it was can't at trust that the point, like, yeah. if I hadn't, like, mm. I always knew I was going to leave South Africa, but at that point, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. knew that I was not going to stay. But at the same time, 
there was so much betrayal because I went to a liberal university and our vice chancellor was right behind the students. Yeah, it um, completely reconfigures, you know, sort of um, our understanding of the role mm. <laughs> of, of vice yeah. chancellors in yeah. universities. Oh no, and this was different. Yeah, this was, yeah. Um, and I remember the vice chancellor going out to the gate and talking to the police on behalf of the students because they were they were bludgeoning the students. Oh, Marcel. And um, you know, a lot of people were arrested, and they just wanted to scare them. But they, had, the vice chancellor, said, "I don't want any of these these students who are arrested to have a criminal record." to say that they were ever arrested. And they, oh, no, no, we won't do that. They did it. And then so when, for example, my brother applied um, to leave the country, this came to light that he he had this record of having been arrested during mm. this protest. So I just... The words deceived. mean nothing, don't they? No, absolutely. Mm. Um, you know, and the, but there was conscription. So all the boys that I knew, mm. the males, they all had to go into the army. Mm. And I bet a lot fled because of it. Well, a lot tried to get, got, yeah. a lot did, a lot left the yeah. country. Yeah. Um, you know, um, my former husband um, went. Mm. He went, though, after he had tra- tra- done his medical training. And so if, if you waited till after your medical or legal training, you could go in as an officer and there you could actually mm. get some kind of reasonable job where they're not going to send you to Angola mm. to fight in the war or something because there was a war in, in Angola and Namibia. Uh, you know, it was also not spoken about. Mm. Not spoken about. Military service. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Military service, yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, they all had to do it, poor things. So we went and I spent my time with him at the time we were already married. Um where he was just posted out to very, very remote African areas to work as a doctor in mission hospitals. There's a whole story there. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so did you want to ask me any other questions? Yeah, I'd love to know some of your influences, some of your poetic influences. My poetic influences. You know, this is like a growing thing because it doesn't, It changes so much all the time because I'm always reading poetry and I'm always seeing a poet do something and I think, oh, how clever, look at that, or I want to try that. Um, So um, just in terms of the poets that I've always loved, I think it's this really started when I came back to university here in Australia I to do a master's degree here at Macquarie. I... I think the poetry I read then started to have a big influence on my on my own, mm. just on how I thought about poetry. So, of course, there were the classics, you know, Yeats, Eliot, um, Plath, uh, Anne Sexton, uh, who are no longer influences for me, you know, Sharon Olds at, some, at one point and all those mm. confessional poets. Mm. Um, you know, they were... I guess there were influences there. Um, but... To be honest, I don't feel, and I know you're not supposed to say this because I know every poem is coming out of stuff that's been written before, but I never feel the weight of other poets before me when I write. I just write. Mm. I, 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 I think that you can feel that in, in your poetry because what I always feel is is that, you know, sort of no matter how um, differently you you approach your, your, your subject, no, no matter what form it takes no matter it, it always feels so very centered in in in, in something mm. that's particularly um marcel freeman and, and i think <laughs> we, were, we were actually talking about this yeah, and, and, yeah, I, th- yeah. and i think that there's a um 
because obviously I, I have the privilege of knowing you, but I, yeah. I think that there's a, a strength of character that is carries through into your poetry um, where I don't know that there would be room for the sorts of... Because lots of poets do the sort of the, the intertextual nods and yeah. the this and the that, whereas it, 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 that I don't think is a feature of it's, it's not a main feature. I think, thank you. I mean, that's really interesting that you say that. I will say that the form of the poems and what happens in them comes out of the poem. It doesn't come from an external, oh, I'm going to write one of those poems or these poems. But there might be a time where I, I think, yes, I'm going to try this poem, but I'd actually like to try and use those long lines like C.K. Williams does. I don't know if you know C.K. Williams, but no. he writes incredibly long lines or... Um, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, um, that American poet who writes terribly long lines. Oh, it's fascinated me that they do that. Um, I can't I'm remember. I'm just actually name. wondering if it's on my. Jory Graham. Yeah. Jory Graham. She writes very, very long. They've actually her books were published. This book published um, by um, Blood Axe, which is like that. So it's, it's long physical like, almost like that so the lines yeah. can and then she'll kind of append some lines coming down and I have tried out poems just to kind of explore what happens when you use a longer line mm. because the line to me is actually absolutely key to what I'm doing mm. every line has to work I, I'm, I'm just smiling because I'm just thinking of something that um, Pio wrote recently yeah. where he was sort of um, I, and I think talking about the militarisation of, of the line yes um, and you know sort of in poetry there's been such a move towards you know sort of the um, compressed lines and, and to sort of break into the, the, the very long you know sort of longer than prose longer than the standard page longer than this yes um, seems really kind of radical and, and exciting. It does seem well it does seem radical and I think coming out of you know when you go back to W. C. Williams and the the, the kind of the Oh William Carlos Williams. William yeah. Oh, was, yeah. yeah of course. But I'm thinking of C K but for yeah. C K Williams is a different poet. Oh, yeah, he and he's the one who he writes extremely long lines. They always spill over. Mm. And I, I've read some, and he does narrative. He does narrative poems. poems yeah. And so I'm very fascinated in how, can I, how to bring narrative into poetry. Mm. It's there, but how to consciously work more with narrative and at the same time to explore the long run but not be writing prose. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I have a very interesting example, which I always tell my students in other units about, which is um, I decided I was going to write a poem with long lines. Mm. Okay, spilling over, and so I set out, and I had this idea which poem it was good, the, a poem that I thought, yeah, this one needs long. Sometimes a poem does need long lines, like my poem, nineteen seventy one in white lines. Um, it wanted longer lines. They're not that long, but they're longer than what I usually do. Mm. And so for this one, they were going to be very long lines. They were going to at least go to the end of an A4 page and then have to start it and have to drop down a bit in mm. the next line to finish. Or maybe, or they'd just be a whole, you know, a whole length. Um, and I started off writing this poem, and it was it was interesting in many ways because I enjoyed the range that you could get with a longer line. It's very different what you can do with a long line and a short line. And uh, it's still a poetic line, but it's not It's not a compressed line. It's mm. a more drawn-out line. So what are you going to do with rhythm there? What are you going to do with sound? What are you going to do with your build-up of images in the one line before you then go on to the next line? <laughs> 
But what happened with this poem, and this, this is one that has taken me so long to work on, is I got so trapped by having to have each line that long. <laughs> <laughs> and so I struggled with this poem a lot. And then I realized I had to let go of this beloved idea that every single line was going to have to be that long. Long, yeah. And maybe if I let some lines be a bit shorter... I could actually get this poem finished. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good lesson there about not deciding too much about your form. Also, look, first of all, the thing that happens is what happens to a lot of writers of prose is that you start putting lots of detail and you mm. get very caught up in the concrete detail and it's all lovely, but hang on, then it becomes too much. Mm. Overkill. You know, it becomes um, kind of overdetermined, if you like. Mm. Uh, and you think, hang on, no, you have to, it's a long poem. You want someone to read it. Where's it going? It has to show where it's going. Mm. And also just, I think, that notion of, of, of the line and, and, and that uh, sort of idea of, of a thought. You, you know, yes. Sort of, uh, you, you, you sort of almost want some sort of parale- parallel between a, a thought and a line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, exactly. And the, the, the line is a kind of unit of meaning. But once I released myself from this kind of pressure that I said, it has to be C.K. Williams of a style. Mm. He does every line that way. Okay. So um, I then started to rework it a bit. Um, and re- and what it let, let, that let me do, which was really good, was it, it helped me to take out extraneous stuff. Mm. And it helped me to uh, also vary the, the pacing. Yeah. And to work, this one, you can see how the lines work with the pacing. So with that one, I wanted to bring a bit of that in, but still, a bit, you know, have that thing about the long lines. And it is a narrative, and I struggled a lot with that narrative because I don't write narrative, but I was determined. There was a narrative there, and I wanted to tell it, the mm-hmm. story. Um, and eventually I did what I should have done months earlier was to send it to a, a fellow poet whom I trust. <laughs> I sent it to Jerry Kroll and I said, please have a look at this. You write narrative poetry, you write verse novels. Tell me, what do you think? Is it working as narrative? And she gave me some feedback, which was really great. And some, you know, and... It would be nice because you're always sort of giving. I'm giving, the, giving, yeah. and I don't take. And I'd actually met up with her ages ago at a conference in London and we said, you know, why don't we swap poems sometimes? It's such a good thing to do but of course neither of us never got around to it and I thought years later I'm going to take her up on it so you know and then she sent me some of hers and we did a bit of email workshopping which was very nice um, but yeah so that was a really interesting lesson yeah. in, in in wanting to, to you know push new boundaries of form mm. wanting to explore what can I do with longer lines um, and then getting too help caught up in that. Yeah, too, and then, too caught up in form. Yeah, yeah, and then having to pull back. Um, so I'm not sure. The poem is finished, I think. Um, I did send it out to the Newcastle Prize. It didn't get shortlisted or anything, but that's okay. Um, I'm probably going to go back. I'll, I'll still go back to it. It'll end up in the book. Um, but, yeah. So when when is I was just going to ask that. I'm There's a new book. It. I'm preparing it. <laughs> At the moment, and this is something that's driving me nuts this semester because this is something I wanted to do. It's like yeah. my pro- one of my projects. And I'm busy putting together, um, a, you know, a, a, at least a manuscript of poems that I've published since my last book, which mm. is for really a while back, seven mm. years. Um, I've got quite a lot of poems and also new poems. Um, so I'm in the process of just pulling everything out of my files on the computer and seeing and the next thing will be to literally print them all and then to start grouping them and see 
how they're going to fit together because some are going to probably have to just won't fit the curation mm. of that the cura- I'm going to have to curate it because the making of a volume is like again a making of another poem yeah I was going to ask about that how mm. do you make all those sorts of choices about oh. and, and what order that they go in as well it's it's you know it's a very strange experience because even in White Lines I mean these are poems written over quite a long period of time you start to recognise synchronies between groups. Like yeah. poems start to group themselves. They don't, you know, from different times that they were written, but there's some sort of thematic grouping or some kind of an approach grouping mm. or or some kind of, I don't know, I kind of, it was a bit intuitive the way I did it. Because mm. it's, it's interesting the effect, because I, I was just thinking back to the last time we had a discussion about, um, about poetry mm. and we looked at your very last poem in white lines yes um, and there, there is there is something about you know sort of a first poem and a, and a last poem mm, yes. that can actually um, give a particular quality to the overall work you mm. know it's, it's almost like it's it's, it's a sort of a, a, a sort of a form of um, emphasis or italics that that sort of introduces an idea mm. that guides the way that you think of the whole Absolutely, and you know when I when I look at the the opening poem, I think that's your copy, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'll just use mine because it's a bit looser. Um, when you look at the opening poem of White Lines called Gate, that was a poem that I written. I wasn't even going to include it, and then I looked. You know, I was going through all my stuff. I thought, hang on, that that could actually be a really nice preamble. Mm. Because it's about kind of opening of the gate, walking through, but also all the stumbles that you make on the way. So that's a beautiful poem to start a, uh, a collection. And it really was, you know, yeah. like walking there, like what is this thing, um, you know, that you're doing? Because that's what the book was actually about, a lot of what. So it set up the tone. Yeah. You know, uh, looking all while ahead with that forceful shine, for that forceful shining thing, you know, you've lost. It was kind of this was actually an encrustic poem, but I didn't acknowledge the the part the. The painting, because in the end it, it became such a thing of its own. Um, but this was a poem I wrote in a kind of surge of energy. Mm. And a lot of these ekphrastic poems, unlike perhaps the more ploddy ones that I was talking about with the long lines, mm. a number of these that I write standing in front of an image or an object come out in a kind of rush. Mm. So you write a lot of poems based on visual arts I do and museum exhibits I do and you know it all happened by chance yeah years ago um, Robert Kennedy had started this group called Diverse and he was working with a couple of poets whom I sort of vaguely knew and I saw that they had done a reading in the art gallery of New South Wales and I thought I want to be part of that group I like (laughs) what they're doing because I was just really interested so I contacted him and said look I think I'd like to actually be part of what you're doing and you know, are you interested in, you know, maybe looking at some of my stuff and seeing whether I can join? And, you know, we, we, we met and we chatted and I showed him some of my work and, you know, I went, I, I, you know, he said, okay, why don't you do the next the next gig that we've got booked, which was the, which was the uh, Justice and Police Museum. That was my first one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Threw you into the dark fire. end, yeah. <laughs> it was the ju- and, and the <laughs> exhibition was, because he was the one who negotiated with cultural institutions to get us a gig. The gig being that we would write on objects in an exhibition, they would advertise us, and we'd do a reading, a performance as part of their kind of social, pro- you know, their their program. 
It's mm. fantastic. It's so performative, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Mm. And so I did that one. It was called, the, the exhibition was called Drugs or Social History. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where 1971 and the Brett Whiteley poem in here came out, Visionary and Morphine, that poem about morphine. And um, not that I'm, <laughs> you know. but You're giving an impression of yourself. I know. Not, I'm not into drugs at all. But the point was that that, that that it was such a fantastic experience for me to just go in and to look at the, there was there were you know opium pipes from early Sydney. Yeah, um, I've got a poem published in in um, Mascara called Yellow about a, a, a woman opium smoker. So I go off and do my research. You know, I went and looked up the history of opium and the opium wars, and you know because there was this opium pipe that I wanted to write on, and I came up with a poem. You know, I read. Um, Richard Flannery, is it Flannery, his book on early Sydney? Right. Uh, he's got a book where he collected a whole lot of um, you know, primary sources on early life in early Sydney, and there's an observation in there of an opium den in that early Sydney. That strikes me as such good like practice for, as a poet. Oh, it was fantastic, and I... I really enjoyed it, and you know, Rob said, "Do you want to be part of our group?" You know, it was great because Jill Jones was in there, and a couple of other people. The group has changed over time, and now we're not actually working because Rob's had to go off to Canberra, so um, we're not doing it. But I'm still working in that way because mm. it was so productive for me, so well, productive. Because mm. I, I think one of the things I, that I come back to all, 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 always when I read your poems is is that I am constantly surprised by the the newness of each poem that um Mm. there's this there's this and I think that there's something so intrepid about the way you approach your poetry which means that um every poem feels at one and the same time particularly a Marcel Freeman poem but also at the same time um is adventurous and vigorous and is sort of willing to to make unexpected encounters turn into poems um, because there is a tendency for, for some poets to, to, to sort of stagnate a little bit and and I don't I don't ever envisage I mean I can't imagine that happening with you and I've certainly never felt that in in, in, in reading any of your poems that's interesting you say that and I think that a lot of what you're noticing is what happens when I go to when I work on these unseen objects mm. um, because they take me to places that I haven't that are fabulous. They're playful. They're dark. They are. Um, they are autobiographical. They're not autobiographical. So I could write just autobiographical poems, which some of these that I've re- read to you are, but they're not all. And it's it's enabled me to 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 broaden my range in a way that I'm actually really proud of because I knew I didn't only want to write from the autobiographical space. Of course, one always does in some way. Uh, you know, to, when you go through a creative process of some kind. But the point is that I also wanted to find my way into Australia. So, and I've done that through engaging with Australian art and Australian objects and Australian history. Uh, do you want me to read the Patrick White yeah, briefcase? Yeah, I think that would be marvellous. Um, hang on, have you got a copy? Of, otherwise, oh, I've got no, that's good. So this is a poem based on... Um, Patrick White's briefcase. Briefcase, yeah. Oh, thanks. That's actually Oh, no, that's Gethsemane. No, I'll read this one. It's more fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So these are two Patrick White poems, actually, this one and Gethsemane. So this is from a diverse event. And um, this was the, I don't know if you remember, not that long ago, they had a 
a show that came from the National Library in Canberra, Patrick White, A Life. Mm. And there was all sorts of memorabilia from Patrick White, letters, photographs, things. Um, and we actually wrote on stuff in that <laughs> in that show. And so, um, you know, the re- you'd, you'd the, re- the way we do it is all the poets would go in their own time and go around and see what they could pick to write on and just write and then we'd all come together. So nobody really knew what the others were had written on. You know, nobody else wrote on this thing. But um, I guess you, there's nothing... You know, you just choose things, yeah. things that spur you. And so there was Patrick White's briefcase. And there was also lots of photos of his of his office, of his study... Um, of where he worked in his house in Centennial Park or the one in, where they had the farm up in um, Castle... No, where was it? Castle Crag? No, I don't know where... Don't him, know. Where him and Manoli had a house. Um, lots of stuff about Centennial Park, which is right near where I live. Anyway, here was the briefcase and um, Patrick White's briefcase. It was a HEPCO briefcase, <laughs> just like my dad used to have. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And that's where I think, oh, okay. Yeah. And so I've also read all of Patrick White's books. Patrick White has been my entry into Australia. Yeah. I imagine that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. And um, I actually had a project going for many years where every Christmas holidays I would read one Patrick White novel. <laughs> I've done a lot. Patrick White for Christmas. (laughs) No, it was fantastic. And I mean, he is Mm. a giant. Mm. I really am, you know, some of his books are quite hard to understand, but others are just so powerful. Mm. So having having him in in my head, I guess, uh, and in my experience, the character Hurtle Duffield here is from the vivisector. Which is that oh, one about the Which though. is about the artist and the creative spirit of that artist. So, um, you know, characters from his novels show up in these poems without my bidding because I'm writing about Patrick White. Okay, so this is called Patrick White's Briefcase. It was in Mianjin not long ago. The wild mind wears a tie, workmanlike but formal, for writing. Hurtle Duffield's spliced mind. Life broken by its fire, painting wildly. A sheaf of papers typed in a leather case with a clasp of brass initialed PW. It's a strong place for stories that fly off the pages to carry them from this room. What a constellation of love and order and dogs and vegetables and wine on the table. The wildness bloomed a galaxy of stars Leather briefcase alongside, like a watcher. I love that. That's lovely, Marcel. I love that idea of you know coming to a a, a novel a novelist or a writer through yeah, their through their material objects. Yeah. I was just thinking, maybe perhaps some one day somebody will write Marcel Freeman's handbag. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, it's backpack. It, it's been. It's. It was so. I just. I love the fact that. I, that I chose that object, yeah. that I wrote that poem. And that uh, you had a nice little link there with your father. Uh, well, and, definitely. Yeah. There's going to work every day with a briefcase yeah. thing, you know. And but, that strong kind uh, of. Yeah, yeah, that kind of very masculine, very yeah. 1960s masculine thing, you know. You don't see people with briefcases anymore so much, do you? No, no. And But the sense that he put his manuscripts in there, and the manuscripts were just about falling, like jumping out because of what was in them. them. Yeah. <laughs> so this was fun. And... 
I had a lot of fun at this exhibition, mm-hmm. you know, even though the, I also wrote Gethsemane, which is in Cordite, uh, which is about the Ian Fairweather painting that he, that Patrick White had, he owned it, and it was hanging on the wall of his study. So there's a f- beautiful photograph in that show of him sort of sitting half on his desk, and, you know, you've got all these books in his typewriter, and then there's the Fairweather painting behind him. Mm. And because uh, he had a nice art collection, you know, he liked uh, to collect Australian artists that particularly people he friend- befriended. Um, yeah, and there were lots of photographs in that show as well. Um, you know, quite a few photos by William Yang, who's a wonderful um, photographer, and of these dinner parties and the just the life in the house. You know, the it was there the dogs, the vegetables, the wine on the table. You know, and it was all there in that mm. in that room in the state library where I just sat down and just mm. wrote this poem. And I'll say to you now that this one is almost unchanged. Amazing. That is really amazing. Almost unchanged, and they paid me a hundred dollars for it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, it's it's not a lot of money. But it's not, it's, it's so not. any money for a poem is worth millions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all about the glory. It's not about the cash. Yeah, right. and and funnily enough, I never make this mistake. But because I've been sending out so many poems. I'd actually sent this one out to another journal as well, to Westerly, and they wanted it. Mm-hmm. And I had to say to them, well, no, um, it's not available anymore because uh, it's just been taken by another journal. And they were lovely about it. You know, she wrote back and said, oh, we'd love to get more stuff from you, you know, but thank you and thank you for telling us. <laughs> but I thought if I let that go ahead, I don't think it's a good look. No. You're no. not supposed to do that because the journals are publishing new work. Yeah. Um, so there was this kind of... It was a strange experience. It was, yes, they wanted it. Two the bidding war. Two people wanted this <laughs> poem that really took me not very long to write. <laughs> Sometimes it just works. But I think it was yeah. also the Patrick White thing. I think it's because I'm engaging with Australian mm. literature. Yeah. And it made me realise that I've actually probably got a project there. Oh, okay. To go back to his books, to his letters. Yeah. And to have a read and to just start letting poems happen mm. around this. Because he's... He's inhabited many months of my life <laughs> with all that it's time, it's time he started giving I back. It's time he started giving back. <laughs> oh, Marcel, that would be a project to look forward to. It's a, it's a project that's going to happen. Well, with that little tantalising um, glimpse into Marcel's <laughs> poetic future, we will have to wrap up because we've actually ran over time. Yes. Thank you, Marcel. That was absolutely lovely and fascinating to hear about the creative kind of process because, um, you know, Michelle being a creative person, uh, Marcel being a creative person, I'm the odd one out here. I don't do anything creative at all. So it's very fascinating to me to hear about all of this. So thank you. Thank you, Steph. And thanks, Michelle. And um, I've really enjoyed talking about my work yeah. with you today. Oh, it's a, it's you. a pleasure, That's... and I'm sure our listeners will love it too. And please go and buy um, Marcel's Poetry Collections, White Lines, <laughs> and Monkey's Wedding, because You're everyone right. needs to be reading more Australian poetry. Um, this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. Um, once again, I'd ask you to please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the podcast, which is what we want. Um, we want more people to know about Marcel's writing in particular. Um, we will see you again in one week. Bye.